Sorry. Before I hand over to you, yeah. I imagine most people have seen your face at a minimum, probably read your stories over the last two, three, five, seven years maybe. Um, we're going to get a chance to get to know you a little bit more uh, at the end of our time together. So I won't steal the thunder then, um, but I just wanted to say welcome. Thank on behalf you. of uh, the 5pm family, it's great to have you here. And I know, I know and we're hopeful to have you here even more. Thank you Thank so you. much, Kieran. Thank you so much, everybody, for making me feel welcome. It's really wonderful to be with you. You guys sent us out, wow, almost four years ago now. Is this all right? Oh, yeah, coming up, a bit taller. Um, now, you might be able to detect a slight rasp in my voice. I've been talking a bit too much, which is one of my usual problems, actually, but uh, even more so uh, recently. So let's pray, not only that God speaks to us, which is what we fundamentally want to happen tonight, but that he'd sustain me so that we can make that happen. Let's pray now. Our Father in heaven, thank you so much for the privilege of being together tonight as your children, able to call one another brothers and sisters. And you, our Father, because of what your Son, the Lord Jesus, did for us. We pray now that you would speak to us, that you would strengthen my voice, you would strengthen our hearing, and that we would remember Jesus Christ, your Son, and that we might endure all things for his glory and for the sake of the elect. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So as I said, a lot has happened since you sent us out three years ago to the mountain people far away. Many of you will know the story, and I'll share more later. But so much has happened these last three years. So much has happened this year alone that after only one month, I saw this meme on the internet. Not sure if you saw it. It said this, after completing my one-month free trial of 2020, I wish to cancel my subscription. After only one month, people wanted to cancel 2020. But the months kept coming, didn't they? The virus, the political problems, finances, all the difficulties of life have not stopped. The pressures to cancel, to quit, to give up have only increased. As you may know, if you've been following our news, the last three years have been tough for my family. And I don't know what pressures you are facing. Have there been moments when you've wanted to give up, to get out, to quit? When you've wanted to give up on 2020? When you've wanted to give up on the seemingly endless disappointments, the awkwardness of speaking about Jesus in what seems like an increasingly hostile world, or even give up on Jesus himself as he doesn't seem to be delivering all that you expected or all that you wish that he would. Brothers and sisters, this is not just a problem for you and me here in Australia today. This is a big problem for the mountain people that you sent us to. Not only do they suffer as an entire people group, poverty and oppression and racism, but the few precious believers there face immense pressure 
from their culture, which does not accept any dissension, any difference of religion, but even from their families. I'll never forget one of the men I was reading the Bible with sharing with me that when he came to faith in Jesus, his father beat him. I'll never forget another story. I was reading the Bible with another friend, and that time when we got together, he wanted to share a story with me. He told me the story, maybe you know it, of Jesus casting a legion of demons out of the man and into the pigs. Wow, what a story. I said, what did you learn from that story? He said, I learned that Jesus is powerful, stronger than even the strongest evil forces. Yes, I said. What difference is that going to make in your life? He said, tomorrow I will wake up. And every day I will wake up and pray that God will keep me from suffering. And he will. And my heart fell. Because I knew, I know that God does not keep his people, his children from suffering. Only three weeks later, my friend Tom would face immense pressure, immense suffering. As we all face suffer, a suffering and pressures that make us want to cancel, to quit, to give up on Jesus and his mission, as the mountain people we love face incredible sufferings, you, me, and my friend Tom, we all need to hear this word, which was so beautifully read out for us, the word that Paul delivered to a tearful Timothy. A tearful Timothy. Because the going had gotten tough for Timothy. Now, some people think Timothy was timid. He was a weakling, a bit of a wuss. But I think those people forget that Timothy had served as Paul's right-hand man for nearly 15 years, through thick and thin. And there was plenty of thin, especially when you remember that to prove a theological point, Timothy had to be circumcised as a grown man. That is hardly weak, am I right? Hardly weak. In fact, 1 Timothy tells us that Paul chose and sent Timothy into conflict. Yet Paul chose to send Timothy to Ephesus, where his job would be, and get this, this is not a fun job description, to confront a band of false teachers and their false behaviors. I don't know about you, but I hate conflict. But Timothy had left his home to go and to preach in the line of fire. No, Timothy was not timid, but he was tearful. That's what we learn in Paul's second and his last letter to Timothy, his last letter before he dies. Please open your Bibles to 2 Timothy and have a look at 1, chapter 1, verses 3. Recalling your tears, I long to see you. Paul longs to see Timothy, not because he recalls their past successes, you know, the glory days, but because he remembers Timothy's tears. And by now, there was much to be tearful about. On the one hand, Paul, Timothy's mentor and father in the faith, had been thrown into prison for speaking about Jesus. Many of Timothy's co-workers had given up. Some had given up on Jesus' mission, and others 
had even given up on Jesus altogether. On the other hand, years have passed, and the false teachers that Timothy was sent to stop are still teaching lies. And now their lies sound better than ever. As we learn in chapter 2, verses 17, these false teachers are teaching that the resurrection has already happened. The resurrection has already happened. Yes, it's already happened. Resurrection life now, free from sin, free from shame, free from suffering. I mean, don't you desire your best resurrection life now? This message, it sounds so good. How can you stop a message that promises what you desire? Resurrection life, powerful life without suffering now. Especially when the only other choice is the painful, shameful situation of Paul, chained in prison. No, Timothy is not timid, but he is tearful. And I wonder, what would you say to Timothy? What could encourage Timothy to endure? What could encourage you and I and the mountain people not to give up, not to quit, but to endure? Please keep your Bibles open to 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 8 to 13. As we are commanded to remember the pattern of Jesus and Paul. Look at verse 8. Remember Jesus Christ. Okay, Timothy's been teaching about Jesus for over 10 years. Why does Paul tell him to remember Jesus? Who can forget Jesus? He's kind of important. Well, sometimes we do forget the most basic things, unless I'm just speaking for myself. Keys, friends' birthdays, wedding anniversaries. But this command isn't just about not forgetting. It's about remembering. Remembering. Keeping Jesus front and center when the distractions and pressures of life would crowd him out. Paul commands Timothy, he commands us to remember two things about Jesus. The path of Jesus and the purpose of Jesus. First, the path of Jesus, from suffering to glory. The path of Jesus and Paul moves from suffering to glory. And I think this explains some of the weird or puzzling details in the passage. For example, throughout 2 Timothy, Paul has already said Christ Jesus seven times. So why switch it up here to his first and only use of Jesus Christ? Christ Jesus seven times, then Jesus Christ once. And then the second puzzling detail, Paul says that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead, descended from David. Why did Paul write that Jesus was raised from the dead and then go back and tell us about his birth in the line of David? I'd expect birth before resurrection, like in the letter to Romans. So why does he switch it up here? I think Paul is using these details to slow us down and focus us in on the shocking origins of Jesus. Because first, Jesus suffered. Before he was Christ Jesus, King Jesus. Because remember, Christ 
is a royal title, not a surname. Before he was Christ Jesus, he was Jesus Christ. Paul focuses our attention not on the fact that Jesus was raised to life, but that he was raised from the dead. From the lifeless, powerless, hopeless dead, Jesus was one of them. Paul focuses our attention not on the fact that Jesus was raised to David's throne, but that he was descended from David. When I asked one of the mountain believers what he knew about David, he had been reading the Psalms for the first time. And he said, David suffered a lot. Maybe we read Descended from David and we remember the promise that God made the ancient king David that one of his descendants would sit on his throne and rule forever. But first, remember that David's life was marked by suffering, sin, and finally, death. And even when we do come to the promise that God made, well, what happened to David's seed, David's descendants, after David died? For hundreds of years, David's descendants did not trust God's promise. They lost the kingdom. For hundreds of years, no descendant of David was king. Humanly speaking, the descendants of David seemed weak and hopeless. Paul wants us to remember this Jesus Christ, who was raised from the dead, from the seed of David. His origins were shocking. His path began in suffering. And just as Jesus suffered, so did Paul. Now, in this letter alone, Paul is going to tell us that he has been persecuted in three different cities, abandoned by his friends, put in prison, put on trial, hasn't got a cloak to keep him warm when the winter comes, and he's facing the prospect of death. This letter doesn't even mention that he was shipwrecked, stoned, sick, sleepless, poor, attacked by people, and even poisonous serpents on the way. But here, Paul doesn't focus on the variety of his sufferings, but on their intensity. Do you see it there? He tells us that he is suffering to the point of being bound with chains like a criminal. And the word for criminal here is a word found in the Bible in only one other place when our Lord Jesus was crucified between two criminals. In verse 8, Jesus was numbered with the dead. Here, Paul is only one step behind on that path, numbered with the criminals condemned to die. The question is why? I mean, why would Paul suffer so much and so intensely? Well, the reason he gives is there at the end of verse 8. Do you see it? It's that peculiar phrase, my gospel. You see, the message about Jesus belonged to Paul in a way that it does not belong to you or to me. Paul was particularly entrusted with the gospel because he saw Jesus raised from the dead with his own two eyes. Now, if you're skeptical about whether Christianity is true or not, how do you explain the sufferings of Paul 
if he did not see the resurrected Jesus? Who would suffer this many sufferings over such a long time with such an intensity for something he knew to be false? No, Paul saw Jesus raised from the dead. This is why Paul preached and he practiced a message of suffering. This is why Paul, bound as a condemned criminal, could shout, but the word of God is not bound. Paul may not have made it to Gospel Zero Spain as he tells us in Romans that he wanted to, but if death is no boundary for God's word, then these chains are not going to stop it. Paul entered so intensely into Jesus' suffering because he knew Jesus' suffering didn't end there. Look at verse 10. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Do you see where the path of Jesus and Paul ends? Jesus Christ becomes Christ Jesus. From the dead, from the seed of David, becomes eternal glory. Eternal glory. What does that even mean? Eternity means life that never ends, that never says goodbye, that never dies. Glory means no shame, no fear, no pain, no sorrow, no suffering, no denial, no faithlessness, never, ever, ever. Only joy and love and peace and knowledge and honor forever and ever and ever, together with all who love Jesus, together with Jesus himself, with God his Father, and with the Holy Spirit. Eternal glory belongs to our God, but our God will share his glory with us forever. And did you see the shocking promise of what glory looks like in the promises of verse 11 and 12? The saying is trustworthy, for if we've died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. Not only will we live, truly live forever, we will reign. Heaven isn't wasting time playing harps. Heaven is ruling a new creation. Little old me, little old you, sharing the rule that should only belong to Jesus, sharing the glory of God forever. Brothers and sisters, all who are sad and suffering, don't be tempted to give up. Don't be tempted to give up. Eternal glory is worth suffering for. Especially when we consider the only alternative. If you're not a Christian yet, or if you're a Christian who's struggling and tempted to give up on Jesus, please hear the warning of verses 12 and 13. Because there are only two ways to suffer, with Jesus or without Jesus. The only alternative to the path from suffering to glory is disowning. 
If we disown him, he will also disown us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot disown himself. My friends, Jesus will either welcome us into eternal glory, or Jesus will disown us, and we will suffer without Jesus, now and forever. My friends, do not take this other path. Do not turn back from suffering with Jesus on the path from suffering to glory. Do not lose eternal glory. Do not be disowned by Jesus. Resurrection life now, trying to live your best life now, minimizing pain and maximizing pleasure, however good that sounds, it ends only in suffering without Jesus, now and forever. No, come, suffer with Jesus. Come, endure on the path from suffering to glory. Keep enduring on this path from suffering to glory. And not just so that you can get eternal glory. No, the purpose of endurance is for others. And this is the final point. Enduring for the elect. Look at verse 10 again. Therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. I endure everything for the sake of others. Others. Classic Christianity. We don't endure just so that we will get glory. We endure so that others will get glory. Now, Paul doesn't say others. He says elect. Why do you reckon he does that? Why does he say elect? I think it's because Paul sees his sufferings from God's perspective. If he looked from his own perspective, chained in prison, all the things he endures would seem lonely and futile, good for nothing, good for nobody. But when Paul looks from God's perspective, chained in prison, he remembers the unchained word of God and he sees the success of his sufferings. Because God has chosen And he does not waste the sufferings of his servants. Just as Jesus suffered successfully, so Paul will endure everything, knowing that his sufferings will prove successful. They will play their part in the elect from all nations obtaining salvation in Christ Jesus. Imagine if we all shared Paul's perspective. Imagine if we lived knowing that our sufferings were not wasted. In times of pandemics, bushfires, floods, droughts, wars, and endless disappointments, imagine if we memorized and made into our everyday motto, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Now, if you're like me, you're probably wondering, how? How? How did Paul's sufferings affect others? How could my sufferings make any difference in someone else's salvation? And the first thing to say 
is that Paul's sufferings and our sufferings are not the source of anyone's salvation. No, salvation is not in Paul, not in Kieran or Rod or Seth. No, salvation is in Christ Jesus. Our sufferings serve the gospel, but they are not the gospel. Now, the second thing to say about the how question, and this may be disappointing, is that Paul doesn't say. He doesn't explain here how his sufferings serve salvation. He just says that they do. Now, if we had the time, I'd share at least four ways that the Bible tells us that our sufferings serve the salvation of others. But here, Paul isn't worried about explaining how his sufferings can be used. He just tells us that they will be used for the sake of the elect and for their eternal glory. Brothers and sisters, the wonderful truth here for us is that if you suffer with Jesus, then your sufferings will be used for others. If you suffer with Jesus and Paul on the path from suffering to glory, then your sufferings will not be meaningless or lonely or futile or good for nothing. No, if you suffer with Jesus, then your sufferings, no matter how small or insignificant or lonely, as long as they fit into the everything that Paul endures, your sufferings will be used for the eternally glorious salvation of others. Brothers and sisters, are you willing to suffer if it means salvation for others? Are you willing to endure anything if it means eternal glory for the elect? After my friend Tom told me the story of Jesus casting the demons out of the man and into the pigs, after he told me that Jesus would keep him from suffering, we spent the next two hours studying what the Bible teaches about suffering. And I was worried. I was worried because after, after Tom saw the lie of resurrection life now, after he saw the reality of suffering before glory, what would he do? Would he turn away from Jesus? Would he give up? When Tom began to speak, I began to tear up. I want to read to you the words that I scribbled down about what he said. This is what Tom said. He said, no one tells me these kinds of things. Even in suffering, I can still have joy. Now I can know why I'm suffering. Then when I am suffering, I can still believe in Jesus. I will tell his story and I will not. Only a few weeks later, Tom would begin to suffer. And in many ways, he's still suffering. But he's still enduring on the path from suffering to glory. Brothers and sisters, will you memorize verse 10? And take it not only upon your lips, but into your lives. I've lived by verse 10, or tried to, while discouraged about all the setbacks, the uncertainties, and disappointments I endure. 
I've lived by verse 10 through many sleepless nights and sicknesses. I endure everything. Will you live by verse 10 in the face of family struggles, coronavirus uncertainties, fearful futures? I endure everything for the sake of the elect. Will you live by verse 10 when you're tempted to believe the lies of resurrection life now, when you're tempted to give up on Jesus and stop speaking about him? I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus. Will you live by verse 10 as you walk the path from suffering to glory, knowing that you walk the same path as Jesus and Paul for the same purpose of Jesus and Paul? I endure everything for the sake of the elect. They may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. May it be so.